just in time for summer, the folks at Epic Brewing have released a new canned cocktail, the Utah Margarita. A delicious blend of real lime and agave, the Utah Margarita is ready to drink by the river or in the park. And here's the kicker, no need to buy it at a liquor store. Pick up a six-pack of Epic Brewing's Utah Margarita at any local Harmon's or Trader Joe's, or visit Epic Brewing on State Street in downtown Salt Lake City. Here's what Salt Lake's talking about. It's been nearly two years since the New York Times called the crisis at the shrinking Great Salt Lake an environmental nuclear bomb, triggering existential panic among Salt Lakers. We are already experiencing dust storms from the drying lake, whose lake bed is laced with arsenic. Now, since then, the Utah legislature has made the lake a focus. We had an unprecedented snowpack. And last week, the Great Salt Lake Commission released a strategic plan to save the lake. So what's in this plan that's got activists feeling so optimistic? It's Tuesday, January 23rd. I'm Ali Vallarta, and this is CityCast Salt Lake. Chandler Rosenberg, you are a co-founder of Save Our Great Salt Lake and deputy director at the Great Basin Water Network. Last Saturday, Save Our Great Salt Lake held a rally at the Capitol asking the Utah legislature to basically do more in the crisis around the Great Salt Lake. How was the energy? The energy was incredible. We were actually all talking about how it felt different from last year. We had, I think, according to the Mm. state highway patrol, 1,200 people, which is twice as many as we had last year. And there was really just an overwhelming feeling of like love for the lake. I would say that was like top line theme was just everyone wanted to come together to celebrate our love for the lake, um, be in community together. And then of course, you know, ask our legislature to do more. But I think something we've figured out within the movement is like, this is long-term work. And if we're going to sustain ourselves, we can't be, you know, rah, rah, do more all the time. Like we have to also come together with this celebration and um, love and also Mm. acknowledging there was a lot of, a lot of our speakers talked about the fact that this really is a spiritual crisis and a cultural crisis. So, you know, policy plays an important role, but we also have to understand those, those larger systemic pieces. I'm so interested to hear you say that because I feel like my fear would be that there were half as many people rallying around the lake this year than last year. And I also think it's funny because what we've heard from the governor recently is he's dismayed by, I think he called it the doom and gloom vibe around the lake. But it sounds like at activist events, that's not the vibe. Not the vibe. I mean, I do think some people are coming. Of course, we all have this fear that we're not going to get water to the lake in time to prevent the toxic dust bowl and the ecosystem collapse. Um, But I think ultimately, you know, it starts with our love for the lake. And that's what grabs people to the movement in the beginning and then allows them to stay is like, hey, we're going to talk about the serious stuff. This is a very heavy topic. You know, we aren't doing enough currently. But if we're not having fun and if we're not dressing up like birds along the way, then uh, people are (laughs) going to burn out. And I think to me, that's like a primary thing we need to think about among uh, the activist community is that. We have a decades-long fight. Um, I think we're all starting to understand the long-term nature of this work. And so if we don't figure out how to sustain ourselves and sustain this movement, then we're not going to last. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about years and years of this work, but I want to ask you to reflect a little bit on years past of this work because you've been organizing around the crisis at the lake 
for a while now. How has your view of this issue shifted over the last few years or evolved? Yeah. Um, I mean, definitely, like I've already mentioned, I think just the shift in understanding that this is long-term work. When we first started Save Our Great Salt Lake, we literally thought it was going to be like rah-rah till the 2022 legislative session And then they would figure it out and we would be done. Like we thought it was just a matter of, oh, we've just got to tell them that there's a problem, point to the science, and then they'll do the right thing. And, you know, once you get started, you realize we're dealing with so much more here than just, you know, communicating information is like a piece of of the work that needs to be done. So I think just understanding, yeah, the long term nature of the work, the fact that it's not just like about crafting good arguments. You know, we have the science, we have numerous studies to point to, to illustrate the problem that clearly hasn't driven action. And so we've got to think about what are the cultural strategies. Um, I will also say over the last two years, especially in this last year, there's so much more energy than there used to be. So groups coming out of the woodwork. Hmm. And I think now it's just a matter of how do we make sure that we're all moving in the right direction? And we're also moving in a way that the legislature hears. You know, I think in the past, especially in Utah with our supermajority, environmentalists get written off. And so it's like maybe this pointing fingers, blame and shame isn't the best strategy all the time. Of course, we're going to have to be honest Mm -hmm. when when they are not doing enough. But I think we're all kind of racking our brains for like what what strategies, what methods, how do we communicate this in a way that they will actually hear? So something that I've learned a lot is like, we can come up with the policy that's going to save the lake, but that doesn't mean anything if they're not ready to hear that. Like policy doesn't exist mm-hmm. in a vacuum. And so I think we need to really think about the individuals that are legislating and, you know, what they're willing to talk about. And they're probably not willing to go as far as we would like them to go. But I think we still need to, to meet them where, we're, where they're at and push them, push them to go further. Well, on the note of the Utah legislature, one of the things that they've done around the lake is appoint a Great Salt Lake commissioner. His name is Brian Steed. And just last week, his office released a strategic plan for the lake, which it feels like is something kind of long time coming. I was looking into it. I know you've read it. It's broken out into three sections. Short-term strategies, like this year, something they called medium-term, which I just absolutely love because it sounds like something I would say. Like, what's the medium right? plan? Yeah. <laughs> It's so vernacular. That's like one to five years. And then long-term, six to 30-year strategies. Let's talk through some of the ideas in here. I want to know what's speaking to you in this plan. Yeah, so I thought I'm ecstatic about the report. I think it's a necessary step. And again, you know, there's been frustration among the activist community that it's a plan to make a plan. And all we're doing is, you know, just talking about Mm. what needs to be done. And we're not taking enough action to actually get water to the lake. That's not untrue, but at the same time, democracy moves slowly. Managing the lake and coordinating state agencies is a huge lift. And our state agencies are also underfunded and understaffed. And so this sort of thing, unfortunately, is going to take a while to get everybody kind of moving in concert and working together. And I think what this plan does is um, sets the table for that to happen. So kind of lays out for the first time in one spot, like these are all of the different agencies that need to work together. This is how we're going to try and coordinate. I think the report does a really great job of articulating, you know, the stakes, the costs, um, especially in terms of dust mitigation. If we don't get this right, they lay out a target 
lake level once again, which the strike team has yes. done in the past. So, I mean, this is exciting. I think what he says is 41.98 to 42.05 yeah. is the target level. Feet. Um, mm-hmm. Which is fantastic. Questions remain on will the legislature care because last year they didn't and they uh, ignored a bill to set that 4198 target lake level. Um, So I think that is a big question around this report is like, okay, how much will they actually listen to? Um, We also, you know, he lays out the short term, medium term and long term and kind of says, okay, let's let's shoot to get to this minimum lake level over the next 30 years. My question is, why does it have to be 30 years? Can we Cut that down to 10, 20. I mean, I'd like to say 10, but. 30 years? Can we even afford that's, to make that? That's a the question. And it's kind of like, how are we making these decisions around, like, okay, you know, 30 years, maybe that was chosen because that's what's realistic. But, like, how do we talk about what's realistic in terms of our well being here in Utah, you know? Yeah. Something that came up a lot in the plan that I wanted to ask you about because I don't feel like I fully understand it is cloud seeding. It's mentioned in almost every one of these yeah. <laughs> yeah, short, medium, and long-term strategies. What is cloud seeding and what can it do for the lake? Okay, so I'm not an expert. I'm frustrated by cloud seeding. It's, my understanding is that it's a techno-optimist solution where we're going to go up and I think like spray, I don't know if it's chemicals or something to artificially influence the clouds so that they will provide more precipitation. And I guess there is research. (laughs) I do think there might be research research that supports, you know, maybe we do get like 10% more precipitation and this could work. But it's one of those things where I'm like, that is so expensive. And it's also, I'm frustrated by, and I think this is, you know, a big um, theme in the report and just a theme in the efforts to save the lake. Generally, it's like, how do we weigh our investment both financially and energetically into conservation versus augmentation. Just this morning, Senator Mm -hmm. Sandel in one of the committee meetings was, you know, saying, hey, we can't we can't leave it all to conservation. We're going to need to consider augmentation strategies, i.e. pipelines to the Pacific Ocean or from wherever else. Um, Yeah, I don't like those solutions just because I think it's kind of like saying, you know, rather than changing our lifestyle, rather than accepting that this is the second driest state in the nation and we've created a mega city um, that's perhaps unsustainable. Mm. Let's just allow business as usual to continue. Let's allow ourselves to keep growing and we'll find water somewhere else another time. But like, A, even if that were a fine idea, it's going to be expensive. It's going to be politically and legally challenging at minimum. And who's to say that these proposed sources that our decision makers see are even going to have water for us in 20, 30 years, you know? Yeah. So cloud seeding to me just fits into that, like, let's not think hard about what needs to change. Let's not change our lifestyles or our culture. Let's instead figure out how we can allow the status quo to continue. Yeah. It also feels like something I would file under tech will save us. That's why I hate it. I'm just like, it's a tech. It's like, oh, you know, the future will come and it'll figure itself out for us. And I think, no, tech's not going to save us. We cannot leave these things for future generations to figure out. We're going to have to just take an honest look of like how our lifestyles and infrastructure and systems are set up in a way that wastes water right now and what needs to change. I think this is this is the bottom line. It's like if we really want to save the lake, we're going to have to change a lot. That it's going to be uncomfortable. The Living Traditions Festival is back in downtown Salt Lake City, May 17th through 19th. 
And this is when I come alive. It is so easy to sell me on three days of Washington Square and Library Square converting to a global food court. And this festival has truly been one of my favorites for years now. Living Traditions convenes the diversity of artistic traditions, food heritage, music, and art from the many cultures that have made Utah their home. You can expect everything from live music and dance to hands-on workshops, a little shopping, Sundance film screenings, and Bohemian Brewery. There is something for the whole family, and it's free entry. Come celebrate all of the rich cultures that make up our community. Find more information on the festival and view the full program guide at livingtraditionsfestival.com or on Instagram and Facebook at SLC Living Trad. We talk a lot on this show about our city's crown jewels. What are the institutions that open doors in our community and regulate its pulse? I choose Salt Lake Community College, and it is a home for incredibly focused Salt Lakers. Nearly 80% of their students work while going to school, many full-time jobs. If I could do college all over again, I would not be 33 and sitting on these damn student loans. And slick students aren't. 80% graduate with little to no student loan debt or save thousands knocking out credits before transferring to a four-year institution. Every day, Salt Lake Community College is transforming lives and communities through education. If you wanna learn something new, refine a trade, or pursue a higher degree for the first time, explore your options at slcc.edu. Study alongside hard workers, save precious money, and be one in a class of 19, not 100. It sounds like this crisis is being viewed, in your words, by activists as a spiritual crisis, something that requires like more of a holistic reckoning, whereas the legislature would like to apply industrialization to solving this problem that activists think was created by industrialization. Like absolutely. It's like does where do you all meet? Like how cuz at a certain point like from 30,000 feet those two things feel almost impossible to compromise. I think you've hit the nail on the head of like the fundamental question of this work, where do we meet because the same thinking that got us into this problem in the first place, i.e. industrialization, let's just develop and use our technology and, you know, we can control nature. That's what got us here and that's not going to get us out. And so a lot of us are talking about this spiritual reckoning of like, it's time to reconsider our place as humans in the larger ecosystem. Like, are we at the center or do we need to start valuing nature and water and other species more? Um, how does our relationship with nature need to change and what does that actually look like in policy? And I think, I think that's where we are. Like it's a big, fat, difficult question and I don't have the answers, but honestly, like I'm hopeful given our, you know, Utah is a spiritual state in terms of we've got a, a dominant religion and I'm like, how can we work with that? How can we tap into, you know, the community's propensity for spirituality to, to move in that direction? Yeah, that's an interesting question to explore. I want to talk to you a little bit about the farming side of this. We know that agriculture is our number one water user in this state. And city slickers <laughs> like to wholly blame alfalfa farmers for this crisis. One of the reasons I really like talking to you, Chandler, is that you kind of have a foot in both doors on this issue. Like you 
co-founded Save Our Great Salt Lake. You've been among Salt Lake's most vocal activists for the lake. On the other hand, or maybe it isn't on the other hand, maybe it's on the same hand, you know, you work with farmers day to day. You co-founded the Utah Food Coalition. What is the deal on the kind of farming <laughs> side of things? Because I feel like as Salt Lakers, it's it just feels so outside of our brain totally. space. Totally. And it is such a complicated question. And I think it's one that like... The community is identified as a problem. You know, now everyone's talking about how much water agriculture takes, but still, even the state, our decision makers, even this strategic plan, I don't feel like goes into the nuance that we need to get to with agriculture. So yes, agriculture. I didn't see ag in there a lot. There were a couple of mentions, but nothing like, here's the problem with agriculture is the changes that need to happen in agriculture, in my belief, are like much bigger than the Great Salt Lake community is going to get at, at least in the near term. Um, so yes, agriculture is using most of the water in our state. A lot of this is for alfalfa and beef. Some of that stays here. A lot of it leaves. Um, so people have taken to pointing the finger at these alfalfa farmers. I think, you know, I got the sense in the beginning that a lot of people thought that these alfalfa farmers were like making billions of dollars. And so we need to just, you know, stop all of this, stop this alfalfa farming. But the reality is these farmers, A, they live in rural communities where they have few options for providing a living for themselves. So that's that's the first thing we need to keep in mind. The second thing is... Um, like they're growing alfalfa because that's what the market is going to offer a good price for because that's just the way that our system has been set up from the beginning, honestly, to, to support like big ag, big meat, big dairy. So it's not like these farmers are saying, you know, hey, I want to grow alfalfa to make a ton. Like they're, they're doing what they have to do. And so it's my view that, you know, right now we talk a lot about like agricultural water optimization. How can we make agriculture more efficient in Utah to use less water? How can we line the canals so that, you know, there's less water wasted? How can we improve sprinkler Drip systems? Water. Yeah, like let's, let's be mm-hmm. more efficient with our watering. That's not bad, but to me, it's like, looking with a microscope when we need to zoom out and question the whole premise of agriculture. Like the system that we are all currently participating in, in terms of us as eaters and farmers that are growing this alfalfa and, you know, all of this stuff for the most part is supporting um, big ag and profit. You know, it's not saying like, hey, what do we actually need to be growing to feed the community, to make sure that everyone has access to healthy food. And if we were to do that, yeah. I mean, basically we, we would need, we need large, huge system change in agriculture. And I think right now the solutions that the state is talking about, it just kind of is like, how do we allow this status quo agriculture to continue, but a little bit more efficient when, you know, really I think what we need to do is be like, hey, maybe alfalfa doesn't have a place. Nationally, we do not need to be growing alfalfa in Utah. Like Utah does not provide a significant amount of alfalfa to the the market. Um, so we could get rid of that, but then it comes down to like, okay, if we're going to keep agriculture and feed Utahns, how do we create markets for those? Because right now there are not markets for alternative products. It's a, it's a, it's a big, big conversation. Right. I mean, the irony of course being that the lake itself is a part of our global food systems infrastructure. Right. Like the brine shrimp, as a is a piece of our global food system so it's also like at the same time the world in some sense relies on us saving the lake from a global agricultural perspective 
It's so funny. I did a panel about water at the Utah Farm and Food Conference last year and had an alfalfa farmer on stage. And he was kind of like, you know, well, we're providing food and the lake's not. And I was like, well, what about the brine shrimp that feed the, you know, the global fish that we all eat at, at restaurants? And he was a little bit shocked by that. And I think that's, you know, that's what I hear a lot from farmers who, again, like we don't want farmers to be on the defensive. I think we need to figure out how to bring them into the conversation and get rid of this back and forth finger pointing. But um, the common defense is like, we just need to help Utahns understand that we're growing food. And I'm like, great, show me how much of what you are producing is staying here and is feeding Utahns. Because the majority of the beef that Utahns eat does not come from Utah. You know, like the numbers just don't add up to me. I mean, it would be so expensive if it did. Right. No, right. As reporters, we get regular emails from the Utah Division of Water Resources with updates on our statewide water conditions. Mm. And last week, the email said that, you know, combination due to record-breaking snowpack last year, some good January snow we've just had this year, our reservoirs are at, this is a quote, a robust 80%, 23% higher than usual for this time of year. Obviously, at first I read that, I'm over the moon. Mm -hmm. But... Do you worry that water optimism will undermine momentum around the crisis at the lake? That's a great question. I mean, I think it has already, like among the legislature, Mm -hmm. even last year, like last legislative session, I felt like we were hearing things. Um, I think that's going to be a big challenge and a big question among the movement. It's like, how do we keep people engaged and keep Great Salt Lake front of mind and, you know, keep in mind for people that we're still in crisis and we're going to be in crisis for a long time. Um, Like how do we keep that momentum for 30 years? I don't know. That's what we're trying to figure out. I do think we need to like take what we can get when we can get it because we're not going to get a whole lot in terms of water optimism. So like this year, yeah, you know, reservoirs robust 80%. I think one good thing I heard as well is that um, last year we actually didn't see as much runoff as we were expecting because our soils were so depleted and the reservoirs were so low that a lot of the moisture went to just, refilling our groundwater aquifers and our soils and our reservoirs. And so this year they're actually expecting to see more water to the lake from runoff because all of those systems are are fuller than they were last year. So I think Great Salt Lake and water is now so front of mind for people that I'm not afraid of it losing a ton of momentum, but you know, we'll see. I think that's something we're just going to have to continue to figure out is like, how do we, how do we make sure that this stays relevant and that the costs of this and that the scale of the crisis is not forgotten. It also feels like the crisis at the lake has become a national, like the new national lens with which people in other states view Utah. I was at the Sundance Film Festival last weekend and the number of people when I told them I lived in Salt Lake City who were like, how's that arsenic at the lake? Right. Like, <laughs> it's the, it's it's quickly becoming our new moniker. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Everywhere I go and I hear this from anyone I know that travels, they're like, yeah, I went to this place. I went to this place. And people here are from Utah and they want to know about the Great Salt Lake. So I don't think that's going away. In fact, I only think we're building more momentum outside of Utah with other states. And I've heard more talk of, you know, how do we get federal decision makers involved and paying attention to this? And so I think I think attention's only going to grow. It's just a matter of how do we continue to build capacity Um, to keep moving things in the right direction and actually pass policy. I mean, what is the finish line? Because you mentioned that when you all founded Save Our Great Salt Lake, the goal was get to the 2022 or 2023 legislative session, solve the crisis. Now you're talking about this as a 30-year issue. So is the state. Right. 
What's what are the goalposts? When do you know you're done? Fantastic question. So I think one answer is we set a target 4198 to 4205, whatever that is. And that's our goalpost, like refilling the lake to a healthy range. Um, for me personally, like I think we'll have goalposts all along the way. I guess a short term goalpost also, in addition to the lake level, is making sure that we have the infrastructure and processes in place to ensure that when we do conserve water, when we do optimize water and agriculture, we can actually see that that water makes it to the lake. So that's shepherding. Um, And that's something that the state is really uh, attuned to and talking about right now. There are several bills to install the technology to help do that. So that's a big thing is like, let's make sure that all of these efforts and money are actually getting water to the lake. I think purchasing Water rights is another thing that people want to see. Like, let's make sure that that Great Salt Lake Trust is collecting water that we will actually see go to the lake. But for me, in terms of like the activism side of things, like I'm encouraged by, I think we do need those goalposts for sure. But I also think building this community infrastructure and building our capacity to like mobilize and work together on the lake is a victory in itself and it's going to set us up for success for other issues. And so that's kind of what keeps me going. I, I found in the beginning, like if the goalpost is like save the lake, we're going to be disappointed a lot and it's going to be hard to keep the faith really, you know, like of course saving the lake will always be the goalpost, but I think that we also need to understand the value of what we're creating here in terms of like opening things up to more civic engagement and getting people to pay more attention to where they live and their relationship with water and developing their own relationship with the lake. Like I think those are the things that will change the culture in the long term. And so we have to count those as successes as well. I mean, I think one of the things that you all have successfully done is made having a relationship with the Great Salt Lake one of the core values and tenets of being a salt laker. Mm-hmm. Like people just talk about the lake. They I mean I have tea towels that are like the lake. Totally. I, yeah. Like I've there's got, like, just lakes. it's become Which I think is what yeah, like I said, like that's what's gonna keep people engaged and I'm I'm really encouraged to see it because when I was growing up here, I have this story of like one of my only memories out at the lake. Someone approached me and was like, where do we get in and swim? And I was like, oh, you must not be from here. We don't swim here. This is not a place that we Utahns come. <laughs> like I said that with no issue. And now I'm like, you know, it's my life's work to try and save this lake. But I had no relationship <laughs> with it growing up and most people didn't. And so I think that's something I'm really encouraged to see is like now people going out to the lake and, you know, we're talking about how do we facilitate that and how do we bring the life of the lake into view for people. And I think I think that's where it starts. Like our hope and something we've always said with Save Our Great Salt Lake is like we're not going to have all the answers. We don't necessarily see ourselves as the ones that are going to come out and be like, OK, y'all, this is the policy that we need. This is what's going to work. But mm-hmm. it's like we know that bringing people together and providing them with a platform to develop their own relationship with the lake and engage with the lake in ways that make sense to them that like allow them to bring their skills forward. That's what's going to create this long-term movement that's going to get us there. Chandler Rosenberg, co-founder of Save Our Great Salt Lake and deputy director at the Great Basin Water Network. Thank you so much for your time and for your work on this issue. Thank you, Allie. Always a pleasure. That is all for us today here on CityCast Salt Lake. We will be back tomorrow morning with more from around this city. Bye.